This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. The first few days of 2022, I was in Louisville, Kentucky, leading music for a conference called Cross. The mission of Cross Conference is to call this generation and the next generation to live their lives uh, for the sake of making Jesus' name known. Uh, this year, we introduced uh, a new kind of a session, a Q&A with John Piper, to talk with him about his life and ministry. I've been listening to sermons and reading books by John Piper for over a quarter of a century and, uh, and have learned a lot from him. And like all of us, especially some of you, he's growing older. You can see it in his appearance. You can hear it in the timbre of his voice. Yet he continues to say the same things he's been saying over the course of his ministry. Things like, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Anybody heard that? Or missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Or simply, be happy in God. I'm sorry, I had to, just, just one. With all sincerity and honoring of the man. I sat there beside our oldest son, Caden, surrounded by thousands of college students, so grateful that my son and all of these future leaders were able to hear Piper say the same things in his old age that had such a shaping impact on my life at such a young age. As we turn the page this morning to Psalm 37, we hear King David speak to us as an old man. Verse 25 tells us that he is now mature in age. Perhaps if we could hear him sing this song, we might hear the length of days in the timbre of his voice. Yet he continues to say the same things over and over again. Things that he has been pointing us to in earlier songs. Worship God. Trust in God. Delight in God. This is not a song of praise to the Lord. Rather, it's a song of wisdom for the people of God, offering us practical instruction for Christian living. Uh, while we're going to focus in on the first 11 verses of this chapter in the sermon, there are a couple of things that you need to know about this psalm in its entirety before we explore it. First, just allow your eyes to look through the whole of the chapter. Look over it real quick. It's spans 40 verses, and you'll notice, as you look at it, it almost seems like one of the chapters from the book of Proverbs has wandered over into the book of Psalms. If I was tasked with giving this chapter a heading in our Bible, which you know those headings are man-made, um, I would probably call it a Psalm of Proverbs, Psalm chapter 37. Perhaps this is even the song that taught young Solomon, David's son, who grew to be the author of the Proverbs, to write the way that he did when he wrote his own collection 
of wisdom sayings. But certainly, David meant this song to be sung from generation to generation to make us wise. It is a psalm of Proverbs. The second thing to know is this is also an acrostic psalm, meaning the first letter of each stanza follows the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Part of this is just creative songwriting, but it's also a helpful way for people to memorize the whole song just using their ABCs. So Psalm 37 is um, both a psalm of Proverbs and also an acrostic psalm. So now that's the landscape. Let's focus in now on the part we will cover together. Psalm 37, 1 through 11 is a little school instructing us to delight in the Lord. The syllabus outlines how to live a God-centered, righteous life in a self-centered, sinful world. These verses assure us, even when we see the wicked prosper and evil institutions thrive and God haters win ultimately a day of judgment is coming will god where god will execute his perfect justice against his enemies while the righteous enjoy the promised land of god's presence this chapter answers the question what are we to do as the people of god when we see evil people succeed the answer don't envy the wicked, but delight in the Lord. So let's circle our thoughts around the idea of delight under three main headings. First, a threat to true delight. Second, instructions for delight. And third, cause for great delight. Let me invite you to stand once more as we read Psalm chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. This is God's holy and infallible and inerrant and perfect word. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. The opening two verses address a threat to true delight. These lyrics ring with warning, like a faithful shepherd would warn his sheep in the presence of incoming danger. 
the looming threat to the people of God in this scene is when they look around the world and see how the wicked prosper, it might shake their confidence in God's justice toward evil in the world, or perhaps even His goodness toward the righteous. Their confidence is shaken. Does does God see what's happening? The shepherd warns when this happens not to react in two specific ways. The first reaction he warns of is don't fret or don't worry. Verse 1. Don't worry is the constant refrain of these opening verses. The Hebrew verb literally means don't get heated, burning up with anxiety over those who do evil. There's a tendency in us to worry about the success of the wicked and allow it to cause our blood to boil rather than keep our focus on God, like Peter, who took his eyes off Christ and and instead was concerned with the troubles all around him so that he began sinking in the ocean. We tend to take our eyes off Christ and onto temporal things around us and begin to sink in our worries. Do you see good things happen to bad people? The first warning says, it's not your problem. Don't worry about it. The second reaction David warns of is envy. This goes beyond just worrying about why people, like last week we saw people that had no fear of God before their eyes, why people with no fear of God before their eyes succeed. And this tendency to become jealous of their success or advancement or wealth or accomplishments. Not Psalm 37, but Psalm 73 contains an honest account of when this happened in the songwriter Asaph's life. Asaph wrote a number of psalms in this book. And this is one of the things he says. Psalm 72, verses 2 and 3. This is him just speaking transparently. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant... When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now there that tells the whole tale. Notice where this envy springs from. It's when he sees the prosperity of the wicked. And this floods his heart with jealousy. You know, jealousy only hurts the jealous. That's it. And so the threat that David warns of is when you see the wicked prosper, don't worry and don't envy. The very next thing David does is diffuse the threat in verse 2, reminding us that the evildoers that we see prosper today that seem to have everything this world has to offer will soon fade like grass, like the grass on our lawns after this long stretch of 100 degree days. It may have been green for a while, but now it looks dead and dormant. It has faded. I played golf with uh, a man a few weeks ago who had built a successful company who sold it at an incredible multiple and now spends his days doing three things, he said. Drinking, exercising, and golfing. His life is unending leisure, which is something that we've been told will bring us happiness. At first you might think, well, Here's a guy who cares nothing about God, you see. But he has everything he's ever wanted. 
Well, I work at a job which I'm overworked and underpaid and have very little. Yet this man will soon die, and in the end he will have nothing to show. He has rejected God completely and has lived for nothing eternal. His life is not an oak tree with roots going down deep in God. It is just a weed that is green for a few days and then will wither. The warning of this passage is not to worry when God haters prosper. But you, Christian, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. And remember, the prosperity of the wicked is short-lived. And so we have no reason to worry or reason to be jealous. Now, there are so many applications, I think, even in these first two verses that I would like to encourage you to think through on your own. I simply want to sound out one warning about the way that this threat can make its way into our hearts, and it's our hearts that I'm most concerned with. Let me explain. Have you ever thought to yourself, well, my company's CEO is just pursuing sin nonstop and still getting all of these blessings from God. Maybe sin isn't that big of a deal. Maybe God doesn't care that much. Or there are people in my neighborhood who uh, seem to make a hobby of gossip. And I have to join in if I'm going to fit in. Maybe we can just overlook this case. Or maybe you've even said to yourself this week, I'm doing all the right things. I'm reading the Bible, I'm praying, I'm going to church and tithing. But God doesn't seem to bless my life like he does others, even people in the world I see all around me. And I just want to throw in the towel. Well, brothers and sisters, this is why these verses are here to warn us of the inclination our hearts have to look at those things and to be filled with fear and sin. And then it teaches us how to respond to evil in the world. Don't worry. Don't envy. Don't let your hearts be troubled. This is the threat to true delight for us to be on guard of. The second section contains instructions for lasting delight, verses 3 through 9. If verses 1 and 2 tell us what not to do, verses 3 through 9 tell us what to do to find lasting delight in God. As a matter of fact, this section is like a vacation-ready suitcase packed with commands. I count at least 14 different commands instructing us on ways to find delight in God. The instructions are simple. They are not easy, as each lesson seeks to help us live God-centered lives in a world that is centered on self. For the sake of time, we're going to focus in on the four primary commands that directly refer to the Lord. Each of these contain vital lessons for us to learn if we want to know lasting delight in God. The first, trust in the Lord, verse 3. This is where everything begins when it comes to delight in God. Trust. Trusting the Lord means faith in God in every situation of your life, including when you see the wicked succeed. Don't stop trusting that the Lord is sovereign over all things. Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, 
For he, that's God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. So trust in the Lord. And then there's three expressions springing from this trust. We don't have time to go into detail, but there's some wonderful expressions here. Do good. Dwell in the land. And perhaps one of the most poetic phrases in the Psalms, befriend faithfulness. Well, how do we live out our trust in the Lord? Well, by living the life he has given us, full of good works, befriending faithfulness, wanting to honor the Lord with our life and actively seeking ways that we might be a blessing to people around us. And in all of this, trust in the Lord. Second, verse four, delight yourself in the Lord. Now, the theme of delighting in God is critical for us to understand. The way the scripture teaches us to fight against sins like lust and pride and greed is to find a deeper delight in God and to be satisfied in Him. The picture here of, is like a very young child who is so content in its mother's arms, loved, cared for. He doesn't care about anything but being with her. Well, we want our hearts to delight in our Father, that we might be so content in His arms, knowing that we are well-loved and fully cared for, so that the success of the wicked is no concern for us. We're so delighted, satisfied in God, that we have a deeper delight than the world can offer. C.S. Lewis put it this way, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased." That paragraph changed the way that I saw delight in God. The richest treasures this world has to offer are the mud pies of money and pleasure and success and reputation. But you and I are wise enough to know that even people who have all of those things still are restless in their souls. But we have a spiritual Treasure chest full of things from Christ. Faith, hope, love, salvation. Things that are far better than a holiday at sea. So how do we delight in the Lord? We fill up our souls on Christ. And when our hearts desire God and delight in God, verse 4 says that God will give us the desires of our heart. How is that possible? Because the desire of our heart is Him. And he loves to fill us up with himself. The ones who delight in the Lord will have their desires conformed to God's will for their lives. And I pray that's true of us. The third instruction here is to commit your way to the Lord. Verse 5. This command to commit our way to the Lord is the next lesson in this little school. Pointing us forward in what it means to live with God. The God in whom we trust and delight. The Hebrew word for commit means 
roll the whole burden of life upon the Lord. Commit means to roll the whole burden of life upon the Lord. And here we're taught to take the burden of our life and the weight of the future and the strain of trying to hold it all together and to take all of that off of our shoulders and to lay it on God. Surely there are countless applications that are coming to your mind already. Four, be still before the Lord. The stillness being prescribed from David is not just sitting and doing nothing. This isn't let go and let God. This is silent, expectant, active waiting on the Lord. David knows it's possible to obsess over the apparent success of evil opponents and to allow that to debilitate a person. And instead, he pairs this final instruction with this detail, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. He spends a whole verse on this. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath, verse 8. Now, the type of anger here being warned against is not so much anger against the wicked. This is anger actually against God because we might grow angry with him because this world seems so unfair. And it tells us that this is what the world does. It tends only to evil. And in the midst of this, in verse 8, we reach the third time these opening verses repeat the same chorus. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. I was just meditating on this this week, and... Um, this is not a test, but just a pause for reflection. But if it was a test, uh, to just check our knowledge on this subject, I think it would have questions like this. Does your heart delight in God? Do you trust in God in everything? Do you know God well enough to delight in Him? Have you committed your way to Him and rolled the whole burden of your life upon the Lord? What about your dreams and aspirations and your plans? Have you rolled those onto His shoulders? How often are you you still before the Lord, quieting your heart before him so that you might hear him speak. This ancient song of wisdom is not as simple as the ABCs, but it is teaching us the basics of how to cultivate deep delight in God. I just pray the Lord would give us ears to hear that this morning. The final two verses contain cause for great delight. The cause for this great delight is a future hope that is centered on the sure day of our king's return. Though it appears that evil people are thriving, ultimately they will be no more. And although the righteous suffer, there will be an end to their suffering. And so the psalmist lifts our eyes above the temporal things of this world. It reminds us to live this life In light of that day, 
And there's a twofold cause for this great delight future judgment and future blessing. Let's look first at the future judgment spoken of here. Verse 10 says, The day is coming when the wicked will be no more. Now, the way David said that at the end of Psalm 1 was that the way of the wicked will what? Perish. That's Psalm 1, verse 6. What he said at the beginning of the book, he now continues to say as an old man. The Psalms teach us to sing through suffering. They teach us to sing surrounded by threats, to sing in the face of persecution. The Psalms are never free from the presence of suffering or sin or threat or persecution. Instead, they teach us to sing through those realities, looking forward to the day where there will be no more sin, suffering, threat, or persecution. The day will come when we will look around this world and we will not see them anymore. And when is this promised day coming? In just a little while. I remember that old Amy Grant song, In a little while we'll be with the Father. In a little while. Some days it can feel like a long while. Can't it? When, oh God. We're right to pray that. But I think when Christ has gathered us up, we will look back and think how brief our days were here. And so look forward to the day of his return, saints, when sin, suffering, death and disease, war and wickedness will be no more. The second cause for great delight is future blessing. Verse 11 concludes our section of the text saying this. See if these words sound familiar to you. But the meek will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Sound familiar? All right. These are the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. He, he quoted this verse as one of his beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, he says. Not just the land, but the earth. In Jesus' beloved sermon, he, he just makes this point so fast and just moves on. But Psalm 37 just turns over this thought again and again. James Montgomery Boyce said, even though uh, Psalm 37 was written a thousand years before Jesus' public ministry, it's right to say that this is an exposition of, it exposes, exposits the truth of that third beatitude right here by the pen of David. It unfolds the character of the meek or the trusting person in the face of the apparent prosperity of the wicked. The point of verse 11 is that the wicked may take more than their fair share, but all with borrowed breath, and in the end they will be no more, leaving the meek, this is the righteous person, the people of God, in possession of all the land. Of course, in the timeline of redemptive history, it was the land of Israel that God's people would inherit. But then in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus puts this promise in an even larger setting, saying the meek will not only inherit Israel, but the whole earth. And so two causes for great delight that are not here now, but in a little while will be here. 
the sure promise of a judgment to come and the sure promise of a blessing to come when we will join the feast and rest from battles won and tell with great rejoicing all the wonders God has done. Let me just take a minute here to allow this portion of the text to serve as a warning to anyone who is still outside of Christ. When the Bible talks about the wicked, it's describing really anyone who has not placed their faith in the salvation of God. By the way, that's everyone in this room before Jesus saved us. We would be classified as wicked people. And so if you've not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ for your salvation and now follow him as your Lord, you are still in the category of the wicked. Now, perhaps you have known the common grace of God. You have health and wealth and success and accomplishment. And you think because God has given you all of those things, y'all must be in good standing. You must be right with God. But that's not at all what the scripture says. It says here that he pours out his reign of blessing, his goodness, even on the wicked. And none of those things will last. None of it will be there in the end. But the thing that will last is your soul. And on the day of judgment, the only thing that will matter is the condition of your soul. Are you right with God? The last part of this section says that they will have abundant peace. Do you have peace with God? The only way to peace with God is through His Son, Jesus Christ, who God sent to save you, to bring salvation to you, to do what you could never do, to perfectly obey God's word and his commands. And so today I invite you to repent of your sin and to look to Christ, turning from your rebellion against God. And in an instant, your position before the holy God will change from being one of wickedness to one of full acceptance. Psalm 37, 1 through 11, is a little school instructing us to delight in the Lord. The syllabus that we've looked at outlines how to live a God-centered, righteous life in a self-centered, sinful world. So whether or not you feel threatened by the success of the wicked, or you're prone to become jealous over the blessing of evil people, this psalm is for you. Because at any moment, the enemy could use the fleeting cares of this world or the snare of riches or the pursuit of comfort to lure you into sin. And when those moments come, and they will come, we have God's word to warn us of this constant threat. And then, not only that, but instructing us how then to fight them. I just, I just even rehearsed this at a couple of other opportunities this week. Just boiling this down, Matt, just trust, delight, commit, be still. Trust, delight, commit, be still. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I can remember four words. And just how the Lord used that in my heart this week to fight sin, to fight temptation. To fight worry was my sin. Worry was my temptation. 
And God's word was my help. And I pray it will be all of ours. And then that we won't forget this ringing promise of the sure day of Christ's return who will come and judge and save once and for all. So what are we to do as the people of God when the wicked succeed? Don't worry. Delight in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us with that. Let your word guide and instruct us. Let your spirit empower and enable us to look up to you, to look forward to the day when your promises will all be fulfilled and to be filled with great faith and trust. Ask all this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.